The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. His grandfather was the keeper of a forest. His father was a musician and a lawyer. He himself was deeply enmeshed in one controversy after another as the political causes he supported rose and fell. He was a revolutionary, a republican, an iconoclast, a reformer, and a brilliant polemicist who fearlessly took on the church and the king. And he found time to write poetry, his first and truest love, and he's generally considered to be among the greatest poets of all time, a peer of Shakespeare, a rival to Homer. Philip Pullman, the author of the His Dark Materials trilogy, said, quote, No one, not even Shakespeare, surpasses him in his command of the sound, the music, the weight and taste and texture of English words. End quote. His name was John Milton. We'll be exploring the brilliance of his poetry and the richness of his life today on the History of Literature. <laughs> Okay, here we go. I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the podcast. John Milton today. Wow. Charles Dickens last week, John Milton this week. We are going after some giants here on the history of literature. I was going to say slaying some giants, but we're not slaying anyone. We're celebrating. What we're slaying are the forces of ignorance and cynicism. Speaking of which, there's my producer over there, Gar. How are you? We haven't heard from you for a while. How are... Oh, oh D- Gar is sulking. Ignorance and cynicism. And I transitioned to Gar. You're going to take that personally? Frankly, I didn't think you were paying attention. Oh, you weren't paying attention. Well, okay. I get it. You never pay attention because you don't care. What an unignorant and uncynical thing to say, Gar. Let's move on. Gar, we have an email to read and then a fascinating writer to discuss. John Milton had an amazing life story. It was truly inspiring what he overcame, what he endured, and what he accomplished. But first, the email. This one comes from... Excuse me. Someone at the door. Hello? Sounds like... Hello. I'm Elizabeth Bennett, star of the novel Pride and Prejudice. Hello, star. Here to deliver a morsel of news. Mr. Darcy and I are expecting. Oh, isn't that Huzzah to us. Yes. However, it is a truth universally acknowledged that a young couple in possession of an infant must be in want of some sleep. Fortunately, our impoverished neighbor, Mr. Jack Wilson, has offered to babysit our beloved little one. I so Darcy and I can better. catch some Zeds. Won't you please support the cause of love, literature, and new life? We shall be eternally grateful for your good sense and your good sensibility. Mm, hello, Star. I'm glad you stopped by. <laughs> I love it when Elizabeth Bennett comes to join us. I'm glad you stopped by and I'm more than happy to help. I'm so excited for this fictional baby. And if you'd like to contribute to the cause of Jack Wilson helping to take care of this baby, or let's be honest here, Jack Wilson could use some help with the podcast too. That's probably even more pressing. Probably. (laughs) Why did I say probably? It's definitely more pressing. This baby thing, it's a farce. It's a joke. It's taking over. Here I am, building a nursery in my house, hoping against hope that Elizabeth Bennett and Mr. Darcy are going to stop by. And I tell myself, well, no, of course not. That that can't be. But what if? What if the knock comes on the door? Oh, like that one. Oh, did you hear that? Do you hear that too? What if the knock comes on the door? What if they knock and open the door and it's the two of them? Them! Lizzie and Darcy with their baby in their arms. I need a crib, a rattle, a few toys, just in case. No, 
What kind of a crazy dream is that? It's madness. Sheer madness. So let's focus on the actual and leave these feverish thoughts aside. Let's focus on the expenses of the podcast, the many hours it takes for me to read all this stuff, the interns I have to feed, the server space I have to pay for, the website, the studio costs, and on and on. Let's try to keep the show up and running. Off the rails yet again. Let's get back on the rails with an email. Subject, commentary as literature. Jack, I just wanted to drop a quick line of appreciation. Peter Adamson, in his podcast on the history of philosophy without any gaps, did a series of episodes on the Islamic commentators on Aristotle. For some of them, he said, their glosses moved beyond commentary and became philosophy in their own right. Just so, you occasionally step beyond discussing literature and start making literature. Your episodes on Madame Bovary, Robert Frost, and The Dead stand out as examples of what a podcast can be. I've read Chekhov's The Lady with the Dog half a dozen times, but still your conversation about it made me think about things I hadn't thought about before. And it made me read it for a seventh time. I haven't listened to all the episodes, but I'm in no rush. Like a good bottle of wine, they are worth drinking slowly. Keep up the good work, please. Jeremy. Oh, Jeremy, my goodness. What an amazing email. What a, an amazing email to receive. It's truly humbling. I don't know what to say. Such a nice compliment. I'm glad you're listening to the show and that you're enjoying it so much. I'll keep filling up these bottles and you can keep savoring them slowly. I sent this to our old friend Mike Palindrome, who was my partner in crime for the episode on The Lady with the Dog. He was flattered as well, and this was his response. What a compliment! This is a quote. What a compliment! No mention of my takedown of Dylan, though. I'll have to make an anti-ode. End quote. No mention of my takedown of Dylan. That's what he puts up against the Robert Frost episode or the multi-part episode on the dead, or the Madame Bovary episode, I opened a vein for those episodes. And he wants his little two-minute commentary on Bob Dylan to be ranked among them. That is Mike Palindrome in a nutshell. An anti-ode? Let's hold him to that. Here, I'll write him back now. Typing. Sounds good. We'll feature your anti-ode Prominently, safe travels, Jack, send. Now, you and I, dear listener, can look forward to this anti-ode. The die is cast, the gauntlet has been thrown, the stakes are raised. My expectations are very high for this anti-ode. But seriously, Jeremy, I thank you very much for the kind words. I'm doing my best. Emails like yours help me keep going. Speaking of which, I never did mention how to help the show, did I? Let's add emails to the list. You can head on over to patreon.com literature to sign up for a small monthly recurring contribution. They make it very easy to do. Just a little bit on your credit card or PayPal account each month. Or you can go to historyofliterature.com shop for a one-time gift, a virtual coffee, or you can buy some merchandise there and or... You can help me out by sending an uplifting email or posting a kind review on iTunes or sending some other words of encouragement out into the universe where they will float around before landing gently on my doorstep like a beautiful butterfly on a soft summer morning. And I will lower my hand and let it hop aboard and I will lift it into the soft morning light and gaze at its beauty in wonderment and gratitude, and then let it fly off again back into the universe. We're all better off. It's win, 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 isn't it? Go create your butterflies and donate them to me. Oh, why did I ruin that? Let's start the giving. I've got a good gift for you today, a good talk on John Milton. You may have skipped over him. You might not be as familiar with him as you are with Shakespeare or Homer or 
Even Wordsworth or Keats, you probably haven't gone to a film festival devoted to his works. My guess is his poems are not the beloved dog-eared copies on your shelf. He might be more admired than loved these days for most people, but hey, he's worth knowing about, and that's what we're here for. This is a life you are not going to believe, and when it's all over and the dust settles, you might want to go seek out some John Milton poetry. His poetry is rich and rewarding. We'll give you a taste of it here, along with the truly incredible history of the person, John Milton, coming up after this. Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. John Milton was born in 1608 in London in a house on Bread Street, where his father was available for hire as a scrivener which meant he drew up wills and marriage settlements and loaned out money. His father, John Milton Sr., was quite successful, actually, and was himself an interesting person. He'd grown up in the country, where his father was the keeper of a forest. He'd started his career as a musical composer, writing madrigals, motets, and hymns, a few of which are still performed today. He was also a Protestant, unlike his own father, who was Catholic. His father disinherited him for, quote, reading the Bible, end quote. As we'll see, John Milton the poet inherited quite a bit from his father, his stubbornness and defiance, and his belief in religious reformation. He also received a solid commitment to education from his father, which helped both John and his younger brother, who was eventually knighted and became a judge. Their mother was a good influence as well. Years later, after her death, John called her, quote, a most excellent mother, known throughout the neighborhood for her charities, end quote. John was, young John was sent to a nearby school called St. Paul's, where he had top-flight instructors from Oxford and Cambridge. By age 16, he was already viewed as an especially promising scholar, excellent at Latin, excellent at English, and good at, in his words, prosing and versing. Prosing and versing. He could do either one. Remember that phrase? He'll do both of those for the rest of his life, and at the highest levels of success. From St. Paul's, he went to Cambridge. He spent seven years there with a career marked by immense academic success. His brilliance now was undeniable, but also controversy. He had a personality that refused to bend, which is not always what teachers want from their pupils. Dr. Johnson thought Milton may have received corporal punishment as part of his education, but that's been disputed. In any case, we know that Milton quarreled with his tutor, left Cambridge for a while, and came back under a different tutor. We don't know the exact nature of the quarrel, but it seems to be that Milton was asserting some independence of opinion. It might be that he was too smart, resented by his teachers for his gifts. 
Smart kids know they're smart. They recognize when they're smarter than their teachers, and teachers know it too. It's not the easiest relationship in the world. It's a situation fraught with peril, and it's not always handled well. Milton's colleagues at Cambridge nicknamed him the Lady. It was a reference to his refined and delicate appearance. He was also called the Lady of Christ's, which went after his prudishness as well. By age 20, he was widely known as one of the preeminent scholars of Cambridge, and yet he was the kind of guy who was passed over for fellowships that everyone knew he should win because he was unpopular with the people on the selection committee. I wonder if baseball players like Ted Williams and Barry Bonds passed over for the MVP award due to their prickly relationship with the press ever took solace in the example of John Milton. Barry, if you're listening, don't worry. You were in good company. Milton was at Cambridge until age 24. Several of his works from those college years survive. We have Latin essays and Latin poems and some classic English poetry. Here's one to give you a taste. This was written in 1630, 14 years after Shakespeare's death. The young Milton comments on the possible tributes to Shakespeare the kind of tomb or statuary that would best honor him, before deciding that poetry has created its own memorial. Here's the poem. What needs my Shakespeare for his honored bones, the labor of an age in piled stones, or that his hollowed relics should be hid under a starry-pointing pyramid? Dear son of memory, great heir of fame, what needst thou weak witness of thy name? Thou, in our wonder and astonishment, hast built thyself a live-long monument. For whilst to the shame of slow-endeavoring art thy easy numbers flow, and that much heart hath from the leaves of thy unvalued book those Delphic lines with deep impression took, then thou, our fancy of itself bereaving, dost make us marble with too much conceiving. And so sepulchred in such pomp dust lie that kings for such a tomb would wish to die. He had other subjects too, a nice one about what it was like to turn 23, for example, a sonnet called To the Nightingale, and a beautiful one called On the Morning of Christ's Nativity. His nephew died... He wrote about that. These were hard years, with infant mortality very high and plague running rampant throughout London. Milton wrote a loving tribute to his nephew called On the Death of a Fair Infant. You can see Milton's themes in these early poems, themes that would continue throughout his life, and you can see his personality and his intellectual interests. He's serious. He draws upon the most brilliant minds he can find. He's wrestling with his predecessors. He addresses personal concerns, but his stakes are high. Death, mortality, poetry, scholarship, religion, freedom, joy, and grief. And although some of the language is outdated, this is, remember, this is barely beyond Shakespeare, the musicality comes through. Milton had entered Cambridge with the idea of being a clergyman. He dropped this idea because, quote, tyranny had invaded the church, end quote. Instead, he left Cambridge at 24 and spent six years in a house outside London in a village where his father had retired. His father wanted him to study law, the profession that had brought him his own fortune. Milton declared that he was a poet and a scholar and that he was determined to earn his living that way. He further declared that as his father was now 70 and declining, he, John, would be in charge of the household and his own destiny. And then, instead of taking up the profession his father wanted to hand to him, he set about a systematic course of reading, Greek and Latin classics, with a mixture of mathematics, music, and the physical sciences, to make sure that he was well-rounded. He wrote some classic works as well. When he was 31, he wrote the poems L'Allegro and Il Penseroso, two companion pieces, both are pastoral poems. L'Allegro is about a happy man, Il Penseroso about a melancholy man. Together they provide contrasting attitudes, different approaches to life, 
How should a poet live? As a happy man reveling in the miracles and joys of creation, or as a thoughtful, observant, contemplative man? The poems were widely successful and influential, and they were revered by the Romantics. The Romantics in general were big fans of Milton, and it wasn't until the 20th century when he was attacked by poets like Eliot and Pound that he fell out of favor for a while among poets. Pound, in particular, hated Milton and said he was the worst sort of poison. Milton's reputation has since been restored, but we're getting ahead of our story here. Milton took off on a trip to Italy where he intended to walk in the paths of giants, his beloved ancient scholars and poets, as well as meet the leading Italian minds of his day. He went to Genoa and Pisa and Florence, where he spent two months going to academies and literary clubs. He sought out and visited Galileo, which is one of those great historical meetings. Galileo was old and blind and at least nominally a prisoner of the Inquisition. Much of this foreshadows what eventually happened to Milton as well. Someone should write a play about this meeting. I'm sure if I paused to Google it, I would find that somebody already has. <laughs> okay, now I have to. Let me look it up here. Just checked. Doesn't seem to be a play yet, although there are several articles, and someone has written what he's called Dialogue in Paradise, the meaning of John Milton and Galileo Galilei. Okay, playwrights, consider that a gift from Jack Wilson. Now go get busy. Milton also went to Siena, and Rome, of course, and Naples. At all these stops, he visited scholars, went to libraries and universities, and was invited to banquets and concerts. He heard the most famous singer of his day, the renowned Leonora Baroni. He was writing poetry along the way, having a great time. From Naples, he planned to go to Sicily and then to Greece, and I'm sure he would have spent many happy years on this trip, months in each stop. But... When he was in Naples, he got some news from England that would change his life. Civil war had broken out. Later, he wrote about receiving this news and how his decision was immediate and urgent. The sad news of civil war in England, he said, called me back, for I considered it base that while my fellow countrymen were fighting at home for liberty, I should be traveling at my ease for intellectual culture. He suggested that his return was hasty, compelled as it was by such noble feelings for his country. Scholars have noted, however, that his return trip was not exactly as speedy as it might have been. From Naples, where he heard the news, he went back to Rome, where he spent a couple of months. Then he went to a house outside Florence and spent a couple of more months there. He made stops in Bologna. I will never blame any man or woman for stopping in Bologna. But then he went to Venice, which is really not on the way to England at all. All in all, it took him eight months to get out of Italy. Some say that he was not as eager to return to the Civil War as he later suggested. But others have said that some subsequent news reports might have given him a different impression of what was happening, that the conflict had stalled or that it wasn't as severe as the first news that he had received. I am going to blame Italy, the magic and magnetism of that damned place, which I know all too well. In any case, the poems he wrote during this period were in Latin and English and Italian. There were five sonnets and a canzone in praise of a certain Bolognese lady. Another poem written about the death of a friend. He also started planning an epic poem based on the Arthurian legend and the history of Great Britain. He always had a taste for big projects. At Cambridge, he'd written a list of topics he wanted to cover in verse, including 53 subjects from the Old Testament eight subjects from the New Testament, 33 subjects from British and English history, and five from Scottish history. There were four drafts with the title Paradise Lost in those early years. Again, I could Google this to confirm, but my guess is that there are many, many dissertations and academic articles going through these drafts. 
seeing how they eventually morphed into his great masterpiece. Eventually, he dropped the idea for the poem about British history, but he did decide during this trip that from then on, he would only write in English. So there he was, a man hell-bent on writing poetry, making big plans and making big decisions. And then the Civil War changed everything. He put his mind to work in very different ways and ended up famous for very different reasons. For those of you who need a refresher, the English Civil War of 1642 to 1651 was a series of battles, both armed conflicts and intellectual and political sparring between those loyal to King Charles I and parliamentary forces. Charles was eventually beheaded, and Parliament was in the ascendance at first under the protectorate of Oliver Cromwell. This was the point where it was established in England that the monarch could not rule without Parliament's consent. It was also a struggle between Catholics and Anglicans against Protestants. In other words, liberties were at stake. Milton was on the side of liberties everywhere, like his father, who was willing to be disinherited for the principle of religious freedom. Milton agitated for freedom of thought and expression. He even extended this liberty to poetry. And when it came time to write his epic, he chose not to use rhyme, which he viewed as an unnecessary infringement on his freedom as a poet. Words should be free, like the mind of the poet, like humanity in general. But before he could find the room in his life to write the poems, he first had to use his pen in the service of achieving those freedoms. He was part of a group that wrote essays against the church and for the cause of Parliament under the curious name of Smectimnus. This 11-letter name was formed by the initials of the five men who combined to write under the pseudonym Stephen Marshall, S.M., Edward Callamy, E.C., that's Smeck, Thomas Young, T, T-Y, Matthew Newcomen, and William Spurstow. Math geniuses among you might have noticed that five pairs of initials only add up to ten letters, but the name Smectimnus has eleven. That's because they ran out of vowels, so they cleverly turned the W of William Spurstow into two U's. None of these men were as clever as John Milton, however. He started helping them with their pamphlets and eventually just took over. They didn't add his initials to their name, and thank goodness for that. It was already a little unwieldy, uncouth, I've seen it called. Didn't need to be smectimnus, whatever they would have done with Milton's initials. Anyway, Milton's essays were titled things like of Reformation Touching Church Discipline in England and the Causes that Hitherto Have Hindered It, which was an essay that reviewed ecclesiastical history in England and urged Milton's fellow countrymen to push the Reformation further and finally get rid of the, of the relics of the papacy and prelacy. That was the kind of thing Milton didn't like. His tutor at Cambridge, the king, the pope, cardinals and bishops. You see a pattern here. He wrote a famous and important pamphlet called The Reason of Church Government, wherein Milton confides in his readers in a personal way. He says, essentially, that he was destined to be a poet, but duty has called. With reluctance, he has resolved to, quote, leave a calm and pleasing solitariness, fed with cheerful and confident thoughts, to embark in a troubled sea of noises and horse disputes. End quote. Horse is spelled with an A there. H-O-A-R-S-E. Horse disputes, not disputes about horses. When civil war broke out in earnest, Milton immediately became in danger based on the positions he had taken. He laid low for a while. He took in pupils in his house in London. One day, he left on a country journey without telling anyone where he was going or why. He returned a month later with a young wife and some of her sisters and other relatives accompanying her. This turned out to be a huge mistake, this marriage. It backfired almost immediately. He was 35 and she was only 17. He loved scholarship and studies. She cared nothing for those pursuits and wanted a more active social life. Her family were royalists, 
As soon as they got to Milton's house in London, they realized exactly who he was and what he stood for, and they panicked. Charles, at that point, was winning the war, and Milton's new relatives worried that they had tied themselves to a famous parliamentarian, the side that was losing. They all left, including his wife, returning to their country home and humiliating Milton in the eyes of his friends and neighbors in London. His father returned to live with him, maybe to try to fill the emptiness of the house. Milton, however, responded in a very Miltonian way. As Dr. Johnson put it, quote, he was one of those who could easily find arguments to justify inclinations, end quote. Milton wrote a pamphlet railing against marriage and advocating for divorce. It was called The Doctrine and Discipline of Divorce, Restored to the Good of Both Sexes from the Bondage of Canon Law and Other Mistakes. <laughs> I love this. He's saying that divorce is about freedom, and divorce itself is in bondage, shackled by canon law and other mistakes. Divorce needs to be freed. Free divorce so it can free me. Milton is very appealing. I wonder if he appealed to Thomas Jefferson, for example. And once again, I can check Google to find out. Yes, of course. It turns out that he was so influential to Jefferson and John Adams and Benjamin Franklin that he's called one of the founding fathers of America for the ideas in both his poetry and in pamphlets like these. Thank you for that, Mr. Milton. And now I have a lot more reading to do, so much to learn about history. It seems I'll never get to the bottom of everything. Let's do what we can. Milton's diatribe against marriage shocked London. It was a dangerous thing to publish as the Church was very powerful, and marriage, of course, was one of its core doctrines. Milton was trampling all over religion's lawn. At first, he was protected by its being an anonymous publication, but Milton didn't care. He was pretty fearless. After the first edition sold out, he extended the treatise and put his name on the second one and published it again. And then, as the authorities ran around trying to figure out what to do with this agitator, who had so boldly staked his name and reputation on such a controversial subject, Milton turned to other pursuits. It wasn't just marriage that needed to be reformed, but education, too. The authorities decided they could prosecute him for writing these pamphlets, calling for reformation, because he had never received a license to print them. Milton responded with yet another unlicensed pamphlet, railing against censorship. This was the one much beloved by the Thomas Jeffersons of the future. It was called Aeropagitica, a speech of Mr. John Milton for the liberty of unlicensed printing to the Parliament of England. I love this title. Here I am, advocating for free speech and using a method that is itself a demonstration of free speech in defiance of your rules. I'm Mr. John Milton. You know where to find me. It was also a way to make himself unpopular with everyone in charge of everything. He was a parliamentarian. He praised Parliament over the king, but his pamphlet was aimed at Parliament for being censorious. He says, I love the Parliament, we need the Parliament, and the Parliament, if it's any good at all, will be on the side of free speech. Do better, Parliament. You should be on the side of freedom. You can see where it made its way to the American Founding Fathers. It practically screams Bill of Rights of the people, by the people, for the people. At the time, though, it made enemies, the church, the royalists, and the parliament, whose side he was supposed to be on. He found himself, quote, in a world of disesteem, end quote. A small number of followers took up the cause, though. In a list of schisms and sects, S-E-C-T-S, as in a religious sect from that period, there was one sect called Miltonists. Actually, what it was called was Miltonists or Divorcers. We don't know if Milton was honored by the tribute or if he was ever visited by any of these Miltonists, but we know he was in favor of sects and schisms. Of course, he said they were healthy signs of liberty. You can see a consistency with Milton here in his preferences. In modern terms, we might say he was against the Borg which makes me wonder if anyone has written about Milton and the Borg. 
once again, Google is my friend. I look it up, and it turns out that John Milton appears in Star Trek, but not in connection with the Borg, as far as I can tell. Scholars rejoice. Jack Wilson has helped you once again. Now write up those essays and make your fortune. The tide turned in the Civil War. The king was on the run. And guess what happened next? Now that it was very advantageous to be on the side of the parliamentarians, guess what happened to Milton? His wife and her family turned up again. They came back to his house. What do you think they said? Hey, John, you know how we all left a year or two ago? Just kidding. (laughs) Oh, and we love those pamphlets you were writing, except maybe that one about divorce. That one we don't like quite so well. Milton let his wife move back in. He got a bigger house to hold the relatives. He was teaching a lot of pupils now. He needed room for that, too. And he needed a corner of quiet space for his own work. He was writing sonnets again, revving up those versing skills to go along with the prosing. And as usual, he made a list of projects. He was planning three works of scholarship now, a history of Great Britain, to be written in prose this time, rather than poetry as he had planned the first time around, a complete system of divinity drawn from the Bible, which he was going to write in Latin, and a new Latin dictionary that he thought was needed. (laughs) That's it. A comprehensive history of Great Britain from its earliest times, a comprehensive system of divinity, and a comprehensive Latin dictionary. I'm... I don't know about you, dear listeners, but I'm planning a remodel of our kitchen. So far, I've kind of half-picked out a new fridge. Milton was the kind of guy who would enter the kitchen, look around, and say, what's needed, what's truly needed, is not just a new refrigerator or not even a new kitchen, but a whole new house. And in fact, we should probably create a new city on this land. And furthermore, what we need is a new way of conceiving our nation. And I'm standing there with my brochure, with black stainless steel circled, but then with a question mark added on top of that, gazing at this ambitious person in wonder. Okay, I mumble as he leaves the room to launch into his gargantuan tasks. His projects, his ambitious projects, were disrupted by a shocking event, the king was beheaded. Suddenly, the forces of Parliament were now the focus of scrutiny, as many in the public believed that this had gone too far. Milton didn't care. Milton doubled down. His next pamphlet was called Tenure of Kings and Magistrates, Proving that it is lawful, and hath been held so in all ages, for any who have the power to call to account a tyrant or wicked king, and, after due conviction, to depose and put him to death if the ordinary magistrate have neglected or denied to do it. You can imagine his publisher hearing that title and thinking, geez, John, this kind of gives it all away, doesn't it? Couldn't you give people a reason to buy the thing? Why don't you call it Notes on a Beheading or something like that, Headed for Greatness? What I love most about the title, other than the fact that it's 55 words long and gives the entire argument is that it has the word proving in it. Tenure of kings and magistrates proving that it is lawful. Milton is very confident in his powers of persuasion. I kind of wish he were here today to write an article proving the best refrigerator for my kitchen and saving me hours and hours of indecision. After reading this pamphlet, Parliament set aside any differences that they had had with Milton and said, We kind of like your style, Mr. Milton, and in fact, we could use your pen. Why don't you come and work for us and help persuade everyone that we're on the side of good here, notwithstanding the little matter of regicide? They offered him a job writing pamphlets and overseeing everything to do with correspondence, official business, printing and publishing, and so forth. His title was... Secretary for Foreign Tongues. Milton was 40 now. He immersed himself in his duties. He still had dreams of being a poet, and not just a poet, but a great poet. But his country and the new government needed him, 
and he felt so strongly about the worthiness of his cause, he felt he had no choice but to put his gifts at their service. Every time they were attacked in some significant way, the new government turned to Milton to respond. He was their best advocate, the smartest, the most persuasive. He wrote rebuttals to royalist arguments. For four years, he not only carried out all his official duties, he helped justify and support the cause of the government itself. And yet, he still dreamed of being a poet, of writing his works, fulfilling the destiny he had always believed in for himself. He still thought that he'd been put on this earth to be a scholar and to write poems as great as any of those ever written before. When would he get the chance? When would he find the time? And then another event happened that put everything he dreamed of in question. His eyesight began to fail, and in 1652, not yet 44 years of age, John Milton, the scholar who wanted nothing more than to read and write the great works that his ambitious imagination had always placed in his mind, went totally blind. It was a blow. A severe blow, but not a defeat. He could have given up and lived the rest of his life in darkness and desolation. But he didn't. His greatest works were still ahead of him. We'll have that story after this. John Milton, newly blind, found that he could still dictate. He was still a political actor and much in demand. Oliver Cromwell was now in the ascendant, taking actions to protect the hard-won reforms and dividing his own followers through his actions. Milton was a supporter, believing Cromwell to be one of the great figures in history, though he worried that he might be going too far. In any case, Cromwell prevailed upon Milton to write pamphlets in his support, then offered him a job as his secretary. Milton did so. He was productive, too, bearing his blindness with courage and cheerfulness. He couldn't embark upon his large-scale projects, but he kept writing sonnets in between letters to foreign powers and other work helping to advocate for and legitimize Cromwell's government. He was busy, of course, so he took on an assistant, and he chose well, especially from a history of literature standpoint. It was Andrew Marvell, a poet nearly as good as Milton, whose poem, To His Coy Mistress, is one of the most anthologized poems in the history of English letters. Not a bad person to serve as your assistant, if you're Milton. Milton's personal life remained full of drama. His first wife died, leaving him with three children, with whom he often fought. He remarried, and his second marriage was happy but brief, as his wife died in childbirth along with the infant. Politics resumed its dramatic intensity as well. The royalists continued their pressure, and Milton continued his attacks on them. But then the Stuarts were restored to the throne, with Charles II returning in triumph, scattering the Republicans. The new parliament, acting as an instrument of royalist will, voted for Milton's arrest and prosecution. In a dramatic turn of events, they decided that Milton should be hanged, and that his hangmen should burn all copies of his books, too. Imagine being the hangman. <laughs> That's a full day's work. Wondering if they're paying overtime for the book burning. Luckily, Milton had some friends in strategic places. Andrew Marvell was clever enough to have gotten a seat in the House of Commons. There were some others there, too, who supported Milton. We don't know who exactly pulled the strings at court to keep the hangman at bay. I'd like to think there were some poetry lovers among them, or that poetry and the promise of Milton's future verses were at least part of the equation. It's not unreasonable to think that. Politically, Milton was against everything they stood for, and he was known to be dangerous to them. So why not kill him? Maybe there was even a feeling that he was a great Englishman and they should keep him around. I have an even greater fantasy that the hangman himself read the works, maybe some of the earlier sonnets, and decided that he had better things to do than to hang a man and burn his books, and instead he spent a week or so in a garden somewhere, gazing at the flowers and 
reflecting on the beauties of the universe. But that is purely my fantasy, and I could find no support for it whatsoever in any of the history books that, frankly, I didn't even bother to check. And actually, the evidence runs the other way. The hangman did burn his books on several different occasions. He just left Milton alone. Technically, Milton was safe, protected by Marvell, but any appearance in the streets risked being attacked by the mob. The public had turned on him. He was the blind zealot who helped to kill a king. He stayed at home unhappily. His daughters from his first marriage came by to steal from him and cheat him. In his unhappy circumstances, he looked to console himself by turning to the work he had always longed to write, the epic story of the fall of Satan and the temptation of Adam and Eve. It was written in verse, and he once again used the title that he had used all those years ago in Cambridge, Paradise Lost. This cheered him up. He got remarried and moved to a new house. He was protected from the cheating daughters. He was still helped by one of his daughters. The plague hit London, and he moved to the country. And there, finally, he got the tranquility he needed to really write what is probably the most famous and best long poem ever written in English. It emerged a few years later with the title Paradise Lost, a poem written in ten books by John Milton. It astonished everyone. It sold out in 18 months. Actually, we should talk a little bit about the sales because you might hear the figures. It sold out 1,300 copies. And you think, well, really, that isn't that much. That isn't that many copies, 1,300. More people will download this podcast episode in a day. 1,300 in 18 months. But Dr. Johnson pointed out, that around the same time, it took 40 years and two editions for Shakespeare's folios to sell 1,000 copies. 40 years! 1,000 copies. Can that possibly be right? That's 25 copies a year. So, if that's correct, 1,300 copies of Paradise Lost in a year and a half is like a runaway bestseller. We know it was well-received, a critical smash hit. The poet John Dryden's reaction here is instructive. Dryden had spent his career writing rhyming couplets and emphasizing to everyone the importance of rhyme to poetry. Rhyme was a challenge, and surmounting that challenge proved your worth as a poet. And then he read Paradise Lost with its thousands of unrhymed lines, and he was staggered. Here was blank verse, unrhymed iambic pentameter, and yet it was superior to everything else that he or anyone else was writing. This man cuts us all out, he said, and the ancients too. Dryden, God love him, couldn't quite give up. He went to Milton and asked if he could turn Paradise Lost into a play. Milton agreed. Dryden's play rhymed. <laughs> <I'd> like... <laughs> Apparently Milton was okay with the rhyme, I guess, or maybe he didn't care. In any case, the rhymed play was produced. While we're imagining Milton, let's put a description of him here, of the man who wrote the great masterpiece. We don't have anything like this for Homer. We don't know who exactly Homer was or what the scene looked like when Homer was writing. So let's celebrate the fact that we have one of Milton, Homer's great heir. Quote, Accounts have come down to us of Milton's personal appearance and habits in his later life. They describe him as to be seen every other day led about in the streets in the vicinity of his Bunhill residence, a slender figure of middle stature or a little less, generally dressed in a gray cloak or overcoat and wearing sometimes a small silver-hilted sword, evidently in feeble health, but still looking younger than he was, with his lightish hair and his fair rather than aged or pale, complexion. He would sit in his garden at the door of his house in warm weather, in the same kind of gray overcoat, and so, as well as in his room, received the visits of people of distinguished parts, as well as quality. Within doors, he was usually dressed in neat black. He was a very early riser, and very regular in the distribution of his day, spending the first part to his midday dinner always in his own room, amid his books, with an amanuensis to read for him and write to his dictation. 
Music was always a chief part of his afternoon and evening relaxation, whether when he was by himself or when friends were with him. His manner with friends and visitors was extremely courteous and affable with just a shade of stateliness. In free conversation, either at the midday dinner, when a friend or two happened by rare accident to be present, or more habitually in the evening and at the light supper which concluded it, he was the life and soul of the company. From his flow of subject and his unaffected cheerfulness and civility, though with a marked tendency to the satirical and sarcastic in his criticisms of men and things. He was extremely temperate in the use of wine or any strong liquors, at meals and at all other times, and when supper was over, about nine o'clock, he smoked his pipe and drank a glass of water and went to bed. He suffered much from gout, the effects of which had become apparent in a stiffening of his hands and finger joints, and the recurring attacks of which in its acute form were very painful. His favorite poets among the Greeks were Homer, and the tragedians, especially Euripides, among the Latins, Virgil and Ovid, among the English, Spencer and Shakespeare. Among his English contemporaries, he thought most highly of Cooley. He had ceased to attend any church, belonged to no religious communion, and had no religious observances in his family. His reasons for this were a matter for curious surmise among his friends because of the profoundly religious character of his own mind, but he does not seem ever to have furnished the explanation. The matter became of less interest, perhaps, after 1669, when his three daughters ceased to reside with him, having been sent out to learn some curious and ingenious sorts of manufacture that are proper for women to learn, particularly embroideries in gold or silver. After that, the household in Bunhill consisted only of Milton, his wife, a single maidservant, and the man, or amanuensis, who came in for the day. We're going to have more on Paradise Lost from our great 18th century critic, Dr. Johnson, in a moment, but let's see how Milton lived out the rest of his life. He was productive for several more years. He wrote a few pamphlets and a Latin grammar book in English. He wrote a sequel of sorts, Paradise Regained, and another epic poem, Samson Agonistes. He brought out he brought he brought out another edition of Paradise Lost. He died in 1674, just before his 66th birthday. But let's not end there. Let's go back to his great work, Paradise Lost, which Dr. Johnson said had, quote, a design so comprehensive that it could be justified only by success. End quote. Many were astonished that it could be written by a blind man, though Johnson walked through Milton's other projects and decided that it was the one most likely to be achieved in spite of the blindness. His argument is reasonable. Quote, Invention is almost the only literary labor which blindness cannot obstruct, and therefore Milton naturally solaced his solitude by the indulgence of his fancy and the melody of his numbers. He had done what he knew to be necessarily previous to poetical excellence. He had made himself acquainted with seemly arts and affairs. His comprehension was extended by various knowledge and his memory stored with intellectual treasures. He was skillful in many languages and had by reading and composition attained the full mastery of his own. He would have wanted little help from books had he retained the power of perusing them. End quote. And here's how he got it done, according to another biographer quoted by Johnson, quote, He would sometimes lie awake whole nights, but not a verse could he make, and on a sudden his poetical faculty would rush upon him, and his daughter was immediately called to secure what came. At other times he would dictate perhaps forty lines in a breath, and then reduce them to half the number, end quote. Milton sets forth his project in the famous opening to the poem, to vindicate the ways of God to man, to show the reasonableness of religion and the necessity of obedience to divine law. It's a worthy subject for an epic, and indeed, no matter what you think of religion or Christianity or the Bible, you can view this subject as essential, just as you can view the struggles at the heart of the Iliad and Odyssey as timeless and universal, even if you don't believe in the Greek pantheon. What created us? Why is there good? Why is there evil? 
Are humans essentially good or essentially evil? And what makes them so? What motivates the forces of good? What compels us toward good or evil? Where does this come from? What are its boundaries? And why do we side with one or the other? What I'm trying to emphasize here is that this is not just a retelling of the Bible. Paradise Lost inhabits the same themes and struggles and inner conflicts that animate the Bible. And it's done by a man and a mind who spent several decades involved in a struggle, watching the psychology of men and women engaged in a conflict with many of these same themes at stake. Authority, obedience, rebellion, battle, engagement, innocence, guilt, good, evil, angels and demons fighting for control, both from without and from within. Famously, the character of Satan runs away with the narrative in Paradise Lost. He's so compelling, it makes us wonder if maybe there's something inherently more compelling about arguments from the dark side. And some authors, like Philip Pullman, acknowledge that they themselves are on Satan's side. Pullman named his his Dark Materials trilogy after a phrase in Milton, and he said, quote, I am of the devil's party and know it, end quote, which is not as horrific as it sounds. God is omnipotent and all good. Why did he cast out Satan? Where was the forgiveness for that angel? And once being cast out, wouldn't you act like Satan if you were him? We went through all of this in our episode on literature's greatest villains, which you can find in our archive. Dr. Johnson notes the controversy surrounding the charismatic Satan, and he dismisses it as misguided. Milton, he said, should not be accused of being wicked merely for making Satan so appealing. The language of rebellion, he said, could not be the same as the language of obedience. Better we should celebrate the project in all its wonderful ambition. He said, it's the history of a miracle of creation and redemption. Let's give Dr. Johnson the last word, because I can't follow his act. He puts Milton second only to Homer, and only because Homer came first. Here's how he puts it. Quote, The highest praise of genius is original invention. Milton cannot be said to have contrived the structure of an epic poem, and therefore owes reverence to the, that vigor and amplitude of mind to which all generations must be indebted for the art of poetical narration, for the texture of the fable, the variation of incidents, the interposition of dialogue, and all the stratagems that surprise and enchain attention. But of all the borrowers from Homer, Milton is perhaps the least indebted. He was naturally a thinker for himself, confident of his own abilities, and disdainful of help or hindrance. He did not refuse admission to the thoughts or images of his predecessors, but he did not seek them. From his contemporaries, he neither courted nor received support. There is in his writings nothing by which the pride of other authors might be gratified or favor gained, no exchange of praise nor solicitation of support. His great works were performed under discountenance and in blindness, but difficulties vanished at his touch. He was born for whatever is arduous, and his work is not the greatest of heroic poems, only because it is not the first. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. I hope you enjoyed this look at Mr. John Milton. Tough as nails, that guy. The lady, they called him in college. Well, this lady was as tough as nails. A very inspiring story. You can find more at historyofliterature.com or on Twitter at thejackwilson. Check us out at patreon.com slash literature or historyofliterature.com slash shop. We'll be back soon. Make my <laughs> sorry. Mike Palindrome has been traveling on a literary tour. He's been to the Globe in London. He's going to have a report for us the next time we talk to him. Hopefully, that will be soon. In the meantime, I hope you enjoy the summer. 
Maybe it's time for you to make a list of ambitious projects. And maybe it's time for you to start on those projects. As Milton said, the mind is its own place and in itself can make a heaven of hell a hell of heaven. He also said, long is the way and hard that out of hell leads up to light. Dig in, people. Take yourself on a journey and make us all proud. I'm Jack Wilson. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.